Well, welcome to the Tez Scotland podcast. Uh, I'm Henry Hepburn, Tez Scotland news editor. I'm here with uh, reporter Emma Seath. Hi, Emma. Hello there. Hi. Um, and our guest today is Billy Burke, who's head teacher at Renfrew High School, also a former president of School Leader Scotland, and he's a co-host of the Changing Conversations podcast, which is described as a space for changing conversations, asking the big questions and questioning why. Now, I must say, I've been our guest in the past and that. I'm not sure if I helped answer any big questions, but <laughs> Billy can maybe, maybe has a view on that. But we are, we're speaking today. Uh, hi, Billy, first of all. How are you doing? Hi, Henry. I'm well. Hi, Emma. Hi there. Hi. So we're speaking, uh, it's the morning after SQA Results Day 2021, a, a very different SQA Results Day in some ways for, for all concerned. Emma, can I ask you, first of all, what are maybe a couple of the, the big, you know, we've had a, a sort of 24 hours almost to digest it now. What are a couple of your big takeaways from the from what happened yesterday? Uh, well, I guess there were the sort of the, the news stories, if you like, you know, so um, the, the main news story was really to do with the um, pass rates coming down a bit on um, 2020. But obviously, they were still an awful lot higher than in the last pre-pandemic year where we had exams of 2019. And then the other big news story was around the attainment gap and um, it had widened on 2020, but again, was still... Um, you know, a lot narrower than we had seen in um, 2019. Um, the other big news story was around the proportion of A-grade passes um, and rises, big rises in A-grade passes. So although you saw the overall pass rate going down, we saw a higher proportion of um, entries at National 5 higher and advanced higher getting A's. Um, and that was at an all-time high. I must say, for me, that it just felt very different. Um, we have been doing for a few years now. We do a live results day blog, um, which is always really busy, and it was busy again this year. But on social media, it felt very quiet. The schools weren't saying too much. You weren't hearing much from pupils, from teachers. Certainly, nothing like on a par with uh, with other years. Um, and I guess largely as a result of the results were in the bag already, um, and there wasn't that sort of uh, sort of frantic sense of what have I got and what have the kids got and what happens next because um, uh, uh, so it just felt very different it felt a lot from from our from my vantage point it felt a lot calmer almost but Billy as a head teacher um, how was it for you can you give us an insight into how the day panned out how it, how it differed from a pre-COVID SQA results day sure uh, absolutely agree with the word calmer it was much much calmer uh, in hindsight, lots of benefits to young people having sight of what they were going to achieve um, before the end of term. I think in most schools, depending on when the end of term was, they managed to get the results and then have conversations with their teachers and the support staff and probably went into the summer having already experienced what they would have experienced yesterday. You know, the highs for some, the lows. Um, so no surprises to young people yesterday. No surprises to schools. Um, normally, I, I spend, well, schools receive the, the results embargoed in advance, and there'll be a good couple of days of being locked away in a room, scrutinising, analysing, applying some formulas and data, you know, to try and work out where, where we were. And we've not had to do that this summer. Um, so it certainly did feel different, much, much calmer. Uh, fortunately, 
in my own school, the, the picture was very, very positive in June. Um, so I've, I've managed to uh, enjoy the summer holiday a lot better than, than normal because that that wonder of, you know, because let, let's be honest, for secondary schools, for their staff, for the pupils, the, the families, results day is it's a time of anxiety because there are judgments made about a young person, a school. Um, so not to have that uncertainty this year was actually, in hindsight, really useful. I mean, that's a serious point. I mean, the, the summer it's such an intense job teaching and, you know, the summer holidays are a really important time for just hitting refresh, uh, taking a bit of time off. But traditionally, you have always had um, results day looming over you, you know, early August. Um, and yep. like you say, the anxiety just doesn't suddenly pop up on results day. It's there for a good while beforehand and maybe over the, the entirety of the summer holidays. Mm. Yeah, always good to start the new session um, with a positive where you can. And not every school every year will record a positive set of results and there'll always be successes and disappointments. So it's kind of become a tradition that secondary teachers start the year listening to their head teacher talk about how well we did or um, things that we need to address in the year ahead. Um, so I'm really looking forward tomorrow with my staff not having to focus on that too much and talk about things that we've not been able to talk about for quite a while. Can I just ask you Billy you know just about um, what you think is going to happen with appeals because it looks like so far there's actually far fewer appeals than um, you know you might get in what you might consider an ordinary year so I think the SQA said so far obviously it's still open you know so people are still submitting appeals or pupils are still putting in appeals but I think they were saying it was um, just under 4,000 appeals and compared to 2019 I think that there were something like 11,500 review review requests put into the SQA results service so it's looking to be you know sort of a reasonably you know kind of low level do you expect it to stay quite low or does will results day have any bearing on you know sort of on appeals and and more appeals coming in do you think I I don't think that we will see appeals at the level previously for for a few different reasons um I mean, one, let's let's be positive. Overall, the results are very positive across the country. Young people have done well, so that probably leaves less scope for appeals. Um, secondly, those conversations would have taken place in June, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, schools certainly have... We don't normally see the marking, for example. You know, a young person will set a paper, it's marked, and we get a result. And there's an unknown about what happened there. You know, was it an error? Was it not? Whereas schools know, chapter and verse, um, exactly what young people produced, how it was marked, how it was cross-marked, how we moderated and validated. So there's less scope for schools to have any questions. Families may still, and young people may still, want to use that right to appeal, and rightly so. But my feeling is certainly that it will be lower than in previous years. And that's probably a good thing for everyone all around. Yeah, because I mean, the thing there were some people who were thinking that maybe because there was that really sort of stressful period just before um, the summer holidays or, or maybe just after Easter where the kids were going through all the assessments. And then at that point, people were predicting that maybe there were going to be a lot of appeals, um, you know, because it was a really sort of frustrating time where everybody was really feeling the pressure and it was very stressful and 
pupils were talking about moving from one assessment to another throughout the course of a school day. Uh, but all that seems like maybe by the time we actually got to the summer holidays, that to a large extent, that the issues had been resolved. And that because, as you say, teachers were able to talk through in such depth and detail about, well, this is why you got the grade that you got that actually, you know, sort of maybe, you know, sort of at the end of the day, young people have, you know, sort of are kind of reconciled to their grade and happy with it. Well, listen, heaven forbid that we actually engage young people in understanding how they've achieved. <laughs> My goodness, what a concept. But that's that's what the model allowed us to do. Now, grades weren't shared until the end of the process, you know, and after all the, the checks and balances had been made, and, and rightly so, but young people received feedback on their progress as they went. So for example, you might have had a, an English, you know, and I'll use the word assessment. Is it assessment, is it examination, is it test? It doesn't really matter, I suppose. Previous years, they would have done it all in one day. This year, I think in most schools, you will have seen that staggered throughout a period of time and feedback in between. Mm. So. You know, as I say, how how strange that young people actually get feedback on their progress. And I think what we've seen from the attainment, particularly at the top end of attainment, is it's actually benefited them as they've gone through the, the process. You know, normally they'll get no feedback over an exam diet. That's the complete unknown. Whereas I think what we've seen is that the feedback that they've had through the process has allowed them to actually improve their attainment. And is that not what we're trying to do? It's really funny you should say that. So that's that's what you think has contributed to this higher proportion of um, entries at National 5 higher and advanced higher actually achieving A grades. You know, so, so, so you think that that's all, that a big part of that has just been this continuous feedback. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's played a part. I mean, it, it didn't pan out as we had hoped and anticipated at one point where it would have been continuous assessment. You know, mm -hmm. We had lockdown um, in term two, and so most of the assessment, almost all the assessment, should have taken place in the third term. The feedback, the ongoing um, engagement with the process, the chunking up of assessments, you know, and the tailoring of assessments to the needs of particular cohorts and schools, that was all part of the model. And if schools have embraced that and used it, then it means that young people got the best assessment experience that we could over the time period, right? Now, couple that with the fact that the change from one day high stakes to spreading it out, chunking it up and engaging them in the process, it will have and did have an impact on young people's um, motivation, engagement, their general well-being. As I said, in, in previous years, you'll go in, you, you probably won't even see your teacher during the course of May. You go into the exam hall, do what you do, leave with no clue how you've done, and then move on to the next subject in a day or two's time. You know, pupils were in school during that period. There, there wasn't study leave, so they were continually getting that support, that engagement with their teachers. And I think that what we saw as the term progressed as stressful as it undoubtedly was for young people and staff. But I think we saw them settle into the process. And I, and I do think that ultimately that has impacted, particularly on 
our most able young people, you know, who have uh, worked hard throughout the year. And we've seen that, you know, we've got a twin aim in Scotland, haven't we? Excellence and equity. So the the headlines today about, you know, oh, the standards must be lower because we've got more A grades. Mm-hmm. That that means we're achieving what we've set out to do. We're, we're, we're aiming for excellence. So more young people achieved excellence. Do you think there's something implicitly being said there when people you are aghast at quotes grade uh, grade inflation? There's a sort of implicit uh, sense that something's gone wrong, but it was right before. But maybe it was wrong before. Henry, you you mentioned you were a guest on, on my podcast. Um, I've got to say it's much easier asking the questions than answering. But and I think we touched on this, didn't we? You know, and your view. Uh, which I thought was really intriguing about the system and how political it is mm-hmm. and how, uh, you know, newsworthy it is. And you, you've got to have something on results day, haven't you? And if standards go down, there's criticism. If standards go up, there's criticism. It's just the way it's always been. So for me, it's getting a little bit more sophisticated and trying to understand what is behind those increased A grades. And I think that if we speak to teachers... Head teachers and young people, you'll hear some of the messages that I'm putting forward today, which is that uh, a move away from this one day in a in a big room in May, high stakes. If we do something a little bit different from that, actually, dear God, we raise standards. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, of course, you know, the only thing I guess is that, you know, pupils were very much reporting that they found that process very, very stressful and teachers were feeding back that, you know, they that they thought that there was too much um, pressure being put on the young people. And as you said, that was because, or that was at least partially because everything had to be squeezed in after the Easter holidays, didn't it? You know, so we had had this idea that pupils would be continuously assessed, but then all the assessment had to come, you know, sort of after Easter. And so that made it, you know, sort of harder to get the evidence in a sort of um, paced, you know, way. Um, so, but I mean, that was that was definitely such a big message that was coming out of, of, that it was very, very stressful. So, I mean, I guess, what, what would you say to that? Well, no, I don't, I don't underestimate for a minute because I saw it, you know, I, I lived it. Um, got to say that, you know, let's spare a thought for the teachers where normally in secondary school, May is a time when we have done what we can, you know, we've we've put in all the revision and the support and we, we send them off on study leave to go and, and perform and the teachers kind of step back at that point. And our thoughts start to turn to moving on next session and the million and one things that, that we've had in the to-do list that wasn't the case this year. Um, so real stress for teachers. Also, I think the most significant stress on teachers was this feeling that they had that normally they don't have much to do with the the final outcome for a young person. You know, they, they get they take the credit and the responsibility for the preparation of a young person. You know, and um, if you have a, a really good teacher and a not-so-good teacher, then the same young person could get very different outcomes. So teachers play a big part in the achievement of pupils, right? But they don't normally, um, in the words of, of many as they spoke to me, 
become judge and jury in, in arriving at grades. And they found that really hard because it's not part of what we normally do. It's not part of what we normally do yet. However, they do assess all the time. It's, it's, it's what we do as teachers. It's part of learning. Um, if you look at further education and higher education, the, your course tutor will will be your assessor. It's, it's just normal practice. But like everything else um, that's to do with change, and particularly change in education, it takes a while to get used to. And if we're honest, the way that it came about this year, you know, it, this isn't, we didn't envisage term three being the way it was. That wasn't part of the plan. Now that just is the nature of work during that pandemic, I suppose, as we're all learning. Um, these are maybe things that, depending on the longer term, people would get used to, people would embrace. Um, but going back to young people, Emma, you're absolutely right. It, it was tough on them. But we, we really tried hard to keep a focus right from day one of this pandemic that our only priority was health and well-being, while still trying to deliver everything that you deliver, experiences, learning, teaching, qualifications. So when we set up for term three, the, the focus was making sure that they were not coming back to high stakes assessments. You know, we wanted them to get some time after Easter break to come back, settle in and get support. We pushed assessments back as late as we possibly could, had to balance it with time to get it marked and cross-marked and quality assured, but we wanted to give young people as much time as possible. Um, and we wanted to chunk them up so that they weren't sitting a two or three hour paper and they were having smaller chunks. And certainly what I found from talking to my pupils as the month of May progressed was that it got easier and they took confidence from the first few days and weeks. But certainly those first few days and weeks and in particular the run up to it was entirely stressful for them because they didn't know what it was going to be like. Equally, most of them hadn't experienced a normal exam diet, mm. so they've got nothing to compare it to. Because let's let's be honest, we all know that's stressful too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and the other thing that you were saying, and it's been controversial too, you know, this, this ability to tailor assessments. So, you know, some schools had, you know, held off on, on having their assessments, give most time for learning and teaching. Other schools, you know, maybe had, you know, sort of two assessment windows, you know, so, you know, so it, it can, it's funny, you know, when you hear it, it's, you know, it, sometimes it's talked about a positive, but then sometimes it's really talked about a negative, you know, as a negative because, you know, it's not everybody having the same experience. And so the the argument then goes the um you know that the, the kids who had their assessment chunked and had an unfair advantage over those who had to you know sort of sit what was you know very pretty much you know kind of a traditional exam where they did the whole thing um you know sort of over the course of an an hour two hours what do you what do you think to that well that that's um a window into the future for me, hopefully, uh, it's called empowerment, where what is right for a group of young people, for a school, those decisions, as far as possible, should be made by the people that know them best. And I mean, you know that it's been a, a big agenda item in Scottish education for a while now. It's a hot potato. Um, I'm moving away from the word empowerment because it contains power within it. 
for me, it's more about agency and, and autonomy. Now, let's just make the assumption, because I'm sure it is the case, that every school stuck to the parameters. You know, there was flexibility, but there were pretty clear parameters and very clear standards for assessment in every subject. You know, and there would have been rigorous quality assurance within schools, within departments, within local authorities, and SQA would have played a part in that process too. So if, if what we want in Scotland is a system that is right for um, individual schools and communities and not one size fits all, then we're going to need to get used to the idea that what you have is principles and parameters and you know a rigorous system, hopefully created, co-created with those that it involves, such as young people and teachers. Um, but then you will allow for local flexibility to, to meet the needs. So that's that's going to be part of the debate going forward. If we really do want empowered schools in this country, then we're going to need to trust. We're going to need to trust the school leaders, the teachers, families and young people that, that, that create the own, their own individual circumstances. So for example, in my own school, we engaged with everyone we could and you know we stuck to this principle. Let's base the model on health and well-being. And I could not, in good conscience, create a system where essentially in term three they did double the assessment they would have if it was a normal year. So the two-exam diet thing was never on the cards. And I get that that then, if some schools went for that, and they might have their own justifications, you could then say, well, it's a different experience in school A to school B. That's what we, that's what comes with empowerment. Yeah, because I mean, the, the argument kind of goes that the more assessments that took place, the more chances the kid had, the, the, the pupils had to get the grade, you know. So, you know, so if you had um, three chances at assessment and you took your best grade, then that was giving you more opportunity. But obviously there's another argument there that if you have more time for learning and teaching and to be supported, then and then you set your assessment that that can that can work in your favour also. Yeah, it, and hindsight's a great thing, and I'm fortunate that I can look back on the decisions that we made, and you know we feel justified and vindicated with a really strong performance, strongest overall that the schools had to date. You know we've been fortunate, we've improved attainment year on year, but it was really strong. Um, so yeah, there's always ifs, buts and maybes. That's why you really just need to agree. What is it you're trying to achieve here? And I definitely, after young people coming back from a second lockdown, with the anxieties, with the worries that they had, how could we really over-assess them this year of all years? You know, with no study leave, um, which is beneficial to some people, uh, I just couldn't see any sense in over-assessing them. And I also don't think that around any given year, for example, in maths, your, your maths attainment will be decided by how you perform in that examination, right? So why this year would we give young people two or three shots at it? Never mind the impact on, on distress levels, the workload. Um, but there's a fairness issue there. So what we did was we made sure that they were assessed as and when they were ready and they could perform at their peak, but there was a fairness to it. But that's, that's an interesting point because some people have made the, you know, obviously there's a big debate now about the future of exams, 
who are running the gamut from keeping the current system to doing away with them altogether. Um, and those who are more in favour of uh, exams as they are just now or close to they are just now would say, well, there's a an element of fairness in doing that because then you've got yeah. a standardised approach. You you know, it's uh, rigorously quality assured um, and everyone goes through the same process. So so that is inherently fair, imperfect as exams may be. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, the everyone does the same thing on the same day. It absolutely takes away all those other variables. Um, the flip side, though, is if... I mean, if you look at the SQA guidance for any given subject, it was the same in Aberdeen as it was in our growth. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were sitting chemistry, you, you had this, and the guidance was, in some subjects, pretty tight and pretty rigorous and, and didn't allow for that much flexibility. I suppose it, it depends, Henry, what, what do we actually want from this system? I think what we need to see and what we will see in the months that follow with Ken Muir's review you know, of Education Scotland and SQAs, I, I hope we will see a continuation of the types of conversations that we are having right now that the profession and others have had over the last year or two, and actually that's been taking place years before COVID. You know, we've known, anyone that works in a high school knows that there's something not quite balancing with the advances that we've made in the school experience you know, in the secondary curriculum and the approaches to learning and teaching, and the fact that they still disappear in May and do the same thing that happened in the early 90s when I was at school and happened you know, for decades before that. So we've known that there must be a more nuanced way to assess young people. For me, I, I always go back to thinking about, so what is it that we want the qualifications to show? Is it to you know, separate people in society, which is what it was intended to do way back when. Those that are academic from those that are not, those that can get into university from those that are not. Is that still the purpose of education for all and achievement for all? Um, Are there other ways to distinguish, you know, the next steps in young people's learning journey? Is it a summative task? I mean, we assess at 16, 17 and 18. Do you need to do it three times? I don't I don't know. I just put that out there. I think that'll be part of the debate. It certainly has been already. Um, is it a driving test? You know, don't get me wrong. It, I'm out cycling on the roads. I want to make sure those driving round about me have had that high stakes test and passed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want the pilot, not that I've been in a plane for a while, but I want the pilot to have absolutely performed to the highest level on the day he had to, she had to. You get into a big philosophical question there, don't you? I've actually written about that in the past, about how the airline industry has has over decades and decades refined itself and refined itself and refined itself to the point where air travel is now ridiculously safe, statistically. And But there's been a clear aim there. The driving aim of that industry has been reduce the number of deaths. But, but then compare that to education... You ask five different people what's the what's the driving aim of education. You might get five completely different, you know, different views on that. It's a it's a far more philosophically complex uh, complex question than 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 what's the main aim of the the airline industry. So, uh, and I guess that is then reflected in all the different views on how we should assess 
assess That is the challenge because in the airline industry, um, in road safety, um, in manufacturing a, a certain item, right? There's a there's clear parameters. It's black and white. You know, fly safe, drive safe, produce the item within an exact scientific specification. Education of young people is not black and white. The other thing we need to throw into the mix is, you know, how has it worked out for everyone so far? Well, it's worked out okay for some, not okay for many. The school system has, as we know, produced an equity issue. Um, and that's why I used the high states thing about a driving test. Yeah, you need to be able to perform on any given day. You know, would they pass the driving test the exact same way two weeks later? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'd hope so. It's interesting, the no wrong path stuff, you know, just in relation to what you were saying about, um, you know, does the, does the system, how well does the system work for everybody? Henry, you were um, forwarding some, you know, sort of like interesting tidbits that you've been reading, you know, sort of on social media about that to me last night. And, you know, there were some interesting points there. Yeah, I think the, the sort of view from some people is that the, the no wrong path hashtag, obviously very good intentions. But the point was being made, well, there are some wrong paths that you don't want to get onto. Maybe a, be a better but less snappy hashtag would be, there are lots of different right paths, but also some wrong paths. And please take care not to go on them. <laughs> you know, so, but, but that doesn't work in social media, obviously. So, <laughs> uh, I completely agree. Um, the, the sentiment behind it was right. You know, we need to reassure young people. And we've had to work at this, particularly when the, the national qualifications were, were revised. We had national four. We should no external examination, you know, and trying to get across to young people that that's credible and it's a great achievement and it will move you on to somewhere. We've had to work in a system that is not all about five A's at higher. So I get the sentiment, but yeah, absolutely, there are some wrong paths. <laughs> Friends of mine who left school and, and made some decisions that they would say in hindsight were definitely the wrong paths. So we don't want to kid young people on either. We're going back, going back to the high stakes nature and what we need to see next. If if you you need to um, produce to a certain level to be a pilot and to drive a car, I get that. But what is it to actually show achievement in mathematics, for example? It, is it about what you can do in one day? You should say to people who are listening that don't know your your background is in maths, of course. Yeah, I, I get to talk about maths and slide maths off because I, I'm, a, I'm a maths teacher. Um, and I suppose my frustration in mathematics for many years was I could see young people performing day and daily. You know, I knew they understood the concepts. I knew they could solve problems. And then I would have to spend the final couple of weeks, months of, of their, their qualification um, teaching them how to pass an exam, you know, teaching them memory tricks and shortcuts and keywords and you know, let, let's be honest, if you have a good memory, if you have good study skills, if you have a nice place to revise at home, supportive family, maybe tutors, um, maybe teachers that are working for SQA and have, you know, greater experience than other teachers, then you'll have a better chance. Whereas actually, and I think this is what we saw in 2020, when teachers were asked to assign grades based on what they had saw throughout the year, an inferred judgment, you know, inferred about how they would perform um, and to be positive about it. That's why we saw the, the issues we did with the poverty gap, 
you know, in particular, the algorithm that affected pupils from low income backgrounds more than others, because there's got to be a correlation in my mind. I have no scientific evidence about it, but there's got to be a correlation between, not just between your, your social economic background and your attainment, that is scientifically proven, but it's the story behind the lower income families. And that is not about aspiration and it's not about family support necessarily. It can be, um, but it's about those other factors that I mentioned that it's not really within the sphere of influence of a school or the young person themselves. Can I just digress slightly there then to ask you, what did you make of it last week when there was a media report which essentially uh, said that, you know, there's this aspiration, you've talked a lot about equity, and there's this aspiration for social justice in Scottish education, and this was all of a sudden in this media report being used as a stick to, to beat Scottish education with. What did you make of that? Uh, Henry, you, I think you saw my reaction on social media. I was... I'd like to say I was surprised, but I'm not. I'm not surprised, you know, that that some, particularly some media productions that are affiliated to a certain way of political thought and social thought. Um, my my comments on it were that that's that's not what we're about in Scotland. You know, we have we have much to do in this country. We've got lots of flaws, but. I think the quest for social justice is one of the strengths. Now, it's not there in every aspect of society, let's be honest. There are many that benefit from the status quo. Um, but certainly within the teaching profession, you know, in education world in general, I think you pointed out, Henry, that social justice has been an ambition of education for a long, long time in Scotland. And we shouldn't be defending it. We should be proud of it. How do you feel about um, the? We were just, you know, sort of reporting this morning that we're expecting um, an announcement from Shirley Ann Somerville, the Education Secretary, before the end of the week about how kids are going to be assessed next year. How do you feel about the thought of just returning to the system that we knew prior to the um, coronavirus pandemic? Well, there's there's what we can and need to do in the short term and, and in the medium term and the long term. Right? So I, I understand to give clarity to people this year that we need early decisions. And I think, to be honest, that you know, as, as we've <laughs> said, you could ask six people um, a question about what should happen next year and you might get six different answers or actually you might get seven different answers because one of them will change their mind based on what someone else said. That's the nature of it. Everyone's got a view on education, remember, because we all went to school, so we know exactly what it's like, don't we? <laughs> you know, just ask a taxi driver or a barber. Everyone's got a view. So the politicians and those that, that lead the system do need to take ownership of decision-making. Um, we know through the pandemic that schools have coped best, and the young people and families have coped best, where we've had early decisions and clarity, whether or not, in hindsight, they were the best ones. You know, and I make no judgment on that, because I genuinely believe that everyone at all levels in the system have tried to make the best calls they could with information they had at the time. So in the short term, if it's we're back to the way I was, I'll understand, you know. I I think there's the opportunity to be a little bit more progressive there. But I also understand that the system is knackered, despite our summer holiday. 
and the restorative power of knackered us tired or knackered us and completely broken. Not broken, Henry. You know, you know me. I'm an optimist. You know, I'm an optimist. So we will come out stronger. I really believe that. Um, I think we already have. I think what teachers and young people and families have done will stand us in great stead going forward. You know, I think we've we've learned so much, pulled together, and there's so much positives. But yeah, people are tired. They're tired of having to be responsive. You know, we're, we're tired of our daily lives being about restrictions and the health and safety. And you know, rightly so, it's had to be that way. But we want school to get back to being what it is at its very best, which is a rich experience. You know, it's not a preparation for life. It is life. This is young people's lives. It's, you know, it's, it's my career. It's been 20 odd years of my life. So let's get back to, to it at its best, right? But yeah, they're, they're, they're tired. Um, there's only so much capacity for change. And I think change in the longer term will need to be done and thought out carefully. And we know that will happen through the, the work, as I said, that Ken Muir will be leading on. I hope that everyone gets a voice in that and feels that they're heard. No matter what comes at the end of any reform, though, there will be, it will be a normal distribution. Once you'll get one end of the spectrum that will be absolutely delighted, another that are absolutely horrified. Even if they're not horrified, they will be when they talk on Twitter. And then you'll get most in the middle that will just, you know, accept and some maybe that will be ambivalent. But in, in, in the longer term, I think there's a there's an energy um, roundabout, let's do it differently. We, we can't just do what we've always done because we'll continue to get what we've always got, to borrow a phrase. Um, you were saying that there was some progressive, you know, sort of some more more things you, that we could be a bit more progressive about, you think, even in that very short term, you know, yeah. for next year. So can you just sort of tell us maybe, you know, sort of what sort of, this, you know, everybody's tired, maybe a bit of a return to what we have known would be welcome, but what therefore small tweaks would you maybe think would be within the within the, the people's capacity to to cope with more change <laughs> exactly and i think um that that's the balance that, that needs to be at the forefront so what what have we done we've cancelled all the exams and gone on teacher inferred judgment and then this year we've cancelled all the exams and we've gone on a pretty tight system based on evidence with pretty clear parameters. Um, when you look back at the data, both seem to have worked well for young people. Achievement's been high. So what we've done in the last couple of years, and I know there'll be opinions to the contrary, but we have raised attainment. You know, we've narrowed the poverty-related attainment gap when you compare data to 2019, 2018, 2017. So we've achieved excellence and we're getting closer to equity. So why, how can you then justify just going back to the way it was before? However, I do understand in the short term that that's, I suppose in my own view, that's probably the most likely outcome. But I mentioned earlier in our conversation, we're one of the few countries in the world that assess kids in high stakes exit exams at 16, 17, 18, fourth year, fifth year, sixth year. You know, do, do we need to do that? Could we blend in some way? I, I know that the argument has been put forward uh, it's one that I supported and, you know, School Leaders Scotland supported, which was that perhaps we 
the, the place of higher and advanced higher examinations are are there and, and there's a real rationale for bringing them back until we do have the debate about what could replace. Um, but given that we don't assess young people at National 3 with external exams, at National 4 with external exams in fourth year, do we need to do that at, at fourth year with National 5 or is there uh, a way to bring in that continuous assessment, that teacher judgment? And although earlier I mentioned about the reticence as it was forced upon us in some way, um, that teachers use their assessment and their judgment to arrive at their judgment based on evidence of what young people would achieve. And there's that reticence to be judge and jury. If we can shift that mindset a little bit, um, then I, you know, and and build confidence from early stages, then I think teachers can walk away with confidence from what they achieved last year because they did, they delivered for young people. There's no reason why we couldn't do that at National Five again. Billy, I know you've got to go very soon. Um, I wonder if we could ask just a, a couple of last quick questions. One is Looking back at the last school year, um, obviously lots of highs and lows, very dramatic. Some exams cancelled in October, the rest cancelled in December. I remember vividly uh, Saturday evening, the 19th of December, getting my dinner and my daughter's ready for the strictly final TV dinner. Uh, all of a sudden, oh no, Nicholas Sturgeon's saying something important and having to go off and write a story about it. And obviously uh, that was all about the, the, another lockdown and the yeah. implications for schools and so on. So just, uh, I wonder if you could tell us... Uh, one high point and one low point from uh, you know a, a really eventful year to say the least. Oh yeah, certainly has been eventful. Eventful eighteen months, um, but certainly from last year, the high point would be, and I probably touched on this earlier, the way for me that my school community and many school communities that, that I uh, have been connected with and people I've spoken to, the way they pull together, the way that we as a system in Scotland, I think put well-being front and centre, put looking after people, put looking after ourselves and staff and each other, um, you know, way up the agenda. We've, we've spoke about health and well-being in Scotland since Curriculum for Excellence was designed many, many years ago. And it, it always came third. You had literacy, numeracy and health and well-being. I think what we did is we shifted that around and we put health and well-being first. And, you know, if anything, what I'm proudest about in my own school community over the eight years that I've been head teacher is that I think what we've shown as a group of staff and, and you know young people and families is that if you actually try to put people first and well-being and positive relationships first, lots of the other things you want from education will follow. So I think that's that's a high point. That's something I hope we hold on to. Um, low point. Yeah, I still bear the scars of. Let's see what's going to be announced um, on TV this afternoon or what email is going to come in tonight or who knows where we'll be next week. I think that the frustration looking back would be that, you know, I mentioned that uh, I'm a numbers guy. You know, at, at the start, we knew scientifically that there was going to be another wave, didn't we? Mm -hmm. The science told us that. We knew there were going to be variants. So I think we could have been better prepared for a, another lockdown. I, I think that you know, in many ways, it took people by surprise, but then again, did it really? You know, if we had got through the whole of session 2020 to 21 with the pace that vaccination was going to come at, which has been superb, but it wasn't going to come quick enough for December, um, knowing what was going to be in store in, in the winter, then I think that, that we would have played the year out differently. 
Mm-hmm. So for me, the low point was having to respond to some of the things that set us back. You know, it felt good being back in August. Uh, it felt good looking forward. You know, I remember standing at an assembly and I'm not making this mistake again, saying to my fifth and sixth years, there's absolutely no chance that your exams will be cancelled. No <laughs> chance. Because they were anxious about it. And, uh, you know, when they were, a few of them gave me that look the following day. You live and learn. You live and learn. You live and learn. So finally, uh, what would be if you've got one big hope for the school year that's just coming up? And I should, I am fully aware that there are, in some parts of Scotland, some pupils, some teachers who are already back at school. So I should just say that quickly. But uh, for you, for the school year that's just coming up, what's, what would be your biggest hope? My biggest hope is that we can uh, reconnect with our purpose. You know, that, that, that really, I think now is the time to start to come out the other end of this thing and reconnect with why you're doing the job that you're doing, why we're doing the things we're doing within the system, why you go to school, you know, what you want from your family that are attending school, what you want from education. Let's reconnect with purpose and let's do things better than we did in the past. Because as I mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of strengths in this country, um, but we've got a long way to go for some young people. You know, Some people, the education system does not stand them in the best chance for their future life as it could. So I hope we can reconnect with purpose, Henry and Emma. And I, what I really, you know, with that, though, what I really hope is that we can start to enjoy learning and teaching again and enjoy going to school and enjoy being at school. Some of those rich activities that we all love, the concerts, the trips, the, you know, holidays, etc. you know, trips abroad. Let's hope we can get back to that because school life is much more than just being in classrooms and it's secondary school is much more than just qualifications. That's great, Billy. Thanks very much for being so generous with your time today. All the best to you for the year ahead and to your school. Um, Let's hope it's uh, it's, uh, it's a smoother ride than, than in the past school year. Thanks very much, Billy. Thank you both. Pleasure.